story, and God has already told us the story. That's what Burton did a fine job reading this story to us. And so there are, it's challenging for me to preach. Uh, I, I, prefer, I prefer over here and give me a couple of verses on Paul, and I can go on forever about it. You give me like how many verses this is, a bunch of verses, and it becomes a little challenging. But there's, there is something, of course, of course, there is something in here for us. But I think this one actually, though, so this is, the setting is weird. There's the, the uh, it, you, if we're reading in Paul, it's a letter. Uh, we understand what letters are. We can read letters. We, they, they flow well. This in Esther, it's this story, and without the mention of God and prayer, church, or, you know, the, the temple, or, or sacrifices, or any, anything like that, it just is such a strange passage. It becomes a little challenging. But I think this particular passage is extremely practical for us and has very practical application. And I hope that you can make ties and I hope the Holy Spirit will work in you to make those ties whether I am successful at that or not. Imagine in your life, uh, a time in your life when you have faced a decision where you're faced with doing the right thing, but that can be hard and it can be costly. You might, um, it, it might, to do the right thing, it might cost you something like your reputation or your image. It might cost you actually financially if you were going to do the right thing. It may cost you some social capital of some sort. So you have to weigh out the cost versus the reward. And you have to choose whether you're going to go ahead and do the right thing and push through or are you going to do the more, say, expedient thing, maybe the easier thing, and maybe save yourself on whatever that cost was? Maybe we are tempted to compromise instead of doing the right thing. <clears throat> and it is true that to do the right thing, it is costly, it certainly can be costly, and it can be uh, very hard. We're going to look at Esther's example of choosing to do the right thing today. Uh, she's a little slow in getting there, but I think that also endears her to us because we, I think, in general, are rather slow in wanting to do the right thing. Now, to catch us up, um, the, the king has made Esther queen, and they celebrate with a big party. Mordecai calls the... Um, Mordecai heard of a plot from two eunuchs at the city gate, a plot to kill the king. Mordecai relays this story to Esther. Esther relays that to the king in the name of Mordecai. Says, you know, king, Mordecai says this. Well, they hung the two eunuchs. Mordecai was not celebrated, but his, his uh, good deed was recorded in the book of the king. And, that, and we're so, we'll, this will be important as we come to it in the next uh, in, in, in chapters to come, but not, not, not today. Um, so then next, in, instead of Mordecai being celebrated at all, Haman is, is actually celebrated and promoted to a high position. He's second to the king. And this Mordecai, I mean, uh, sorry, Haman, he is a descendant of the Amalekites, which are longstanding enemies of the Jews. And so then he is a power-hungry guy. He wants everybody to bow to him. And Mordecai 
being a, an actual Jew, though with a Persian name, who has done a great job of disguising himself and blending in to the Persian culture, has, is willing to cast all that off and refuses to bow to Haman. He, he's not, not going to do it. And so uh, this becomes a turning point. That was, the last, that was last week in chapter 3, a turning point for Mordecai where his story intersected God's story and he recognized he could not compromise on that anymore. So uh, he openly confesses that he's a Jew, which cost him greatly. So it cost him his job. It cost him everything that he had been working toward. And so then he became an instant enemy of Haman. And then Haman was infuriated because Mordecai was not going to bow down to him. And so Mordecai has this hatred for, uh, sorry, Haman has this hatred for Mordecai. And so his hatred for Mordecai ex expanded, not just for like revenge for this one guy, but to an, a, a plan for genocide or extermination of all the Jews in the land. And so this is where our passage picks up today. The, the decree had just been sent out, and the land is in chaos. And so our, this is where we're picking up the story today. And so in our passage today, in this chapter 4, I want us to see that formed in the crucible, the way of suffering, the way, the, the way out of suffering is through it. And in the process, we must open ourselves to the risks of pain and heartache in order to experience the joy of grace on the other side. So the first thing um, we're going to look at is we, we want to seek clarity to understand your options. You're faced, you're faced with this pivotal moment in time in your life and, you're, and you are faced with making a right choice and going through the hard thing or compromise. Well, first you want to understand your options. So let's look, beginning in uh, verse 1, uh, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud voice and a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So earlier, we, the beautiful gowns and cosmetics that were talked about earlier in this book are now replaced with sackcloth and ashes. It would have been normal for a, a customary thing for a Jew to clothe themselves in sackcloth and ashes after something devastating had happened. But here, Mordecai is wearing them now in expectation. And it's, it's, there, is, there is something horrible in the fact that the decree went out. But there are the, the Jews are slated to be slaughtered in 11 months. Uh, the, the decree went out. They, they rolled dice to decide when the proper day would be. And as it turns out, that's going to be like in 11 months. So we're going to just send out this decree and let everybody sweat. This is why the land is in chaos. But because the decree went out and there's this sure and certain date for the slaughtering of the Jews, Mordecai is wearing these, uh, the sackcloth and the ashes to relate to death to identify with death, which is sure to come. In our world where death is sanitized and we seldom actually mourn, uh, we live with 
all kinds of things that are being normalized. I think we would be a healthier bunch of people if we would normalize mourning, if we would normalize grieving. I, I, think, I, think, it's, I think it's funny the, the amount of things that are, that are put, in, put in front of us to normalize these, and we're normal. Some of these things to normalize are probably good. Some things are just weird, and they're off the wall, and they're even against God's will. But this is what we need to normalize in our world today. Well, I think we ought to normalize mourning. I think we ought to normalize grieving, as opposed as opposed to just covering it up, getting on with the celebrations of life, if you will. I think there needs to be a time for actually mourning. Mordecai, in his mourning, he does not conceal his feelings. He's not, he is not worried about how others will see him. He's out and about. He's out in the streets. He's got his sackcloth and ashes on. He looks different than he normally does. He's wide open. There are no pretenses anymore. He even attempts to get to the king's gate. He wants to get into the, to the palace. He wants to get to Esther. Esther learns that the cousin Mordecai is out in the street making a, making a nuisance, dressed in sackcloth and ashes, and so she sends him clothes and suggests he stop behaving like that. So th this is where I think we need to, she has a rush to fix this problem. She's not asking him, why are you different? Why are you wearing sackcloth and ashes? Her first attempt is to cover that up I don't want you to embarrass me. I don't want you to embarrass yourself. I think the concept of grieving, breaking down, not being able to hold it together because our hearts are broken over the loss of, fill in the blank, ought to be that thing that's normalized as opposed to us trying to cover it up. So she wants to cover it up, she wants to get in close and wants this just to stop. She hasn't yet sought out what her options are. She doesn't know what possibilities lie ahead. She doesn't know what his problem is. She didn't seek to understand, which I think is very important. I think it's key. And obviously, we just go from one verse to the next. But these people, it's like the, she's sending people out with his clothes. He refuses them. They have to go back and they say, oh, he didn't take them. And we just, we just go to the next verse and we're into the next, um, the, the next part of the scene. But we're missing the time delay and, and I, th I think it's helpful for us to understand how she initially wants to address a problem that she doesn't understand. And so when we are faced with these decisions in life, we want to be sure we're understanding the actual problem, that we're asking enough questions so that we can make accurate decisions and assess our way forward because we have sought to understand first. Um, so he, he refuses, he tells uh, Hathach that the, about the decree that went out, um, about how Haman promised a great sum of money. He, he, wants, he, he gives, he gives uh, Hathach, the, this messenger, all the details, in, including a copy of the decree, to take back to Esther so that she can be well informed of the gravity of the situation. He doesn't want her to miss the significance of what's going on. Um, The question is, would, he, he, he gives her, he gives the Hathach all this stuff, she, he goes back, he delivers the message, 
He's hoping she'll see the gravity of the situation. He also gives some commands then, but the, the question becomes, will she comply? And so we're going to see next a delayed obedience. So uh, chapter, uh, we're still in chapter 4, verse 9, let's look there. It says, And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. So Esther receives the message from this messenger from Mordecai and wants to deliver a message back. And uh, Esther at this time has still hidden her Jewishness as Mordecai had instructed her from the very beginning and then it's been reinforced since then that she'd still hidden her, her Jewishness, her heritage. Um, but she's now received this information and she knows that she's a Jew. She, nobody else might know that she's a Jew. She knows she's a Jew. And she sees how devastating this is going to be on her people, on God's people, on God's chosen people. And she, she knows this. She knows the history. Now the information is in front of her. She knows why uh, Mordecai is mourning. But uh, she looks around and readily finds reasons that Mordecai's idea is not a good one. How strange is that to us? Is that strange to you? Somebody speaks to us, and we think that's somebody just speaking in the flesh because that's all we know. We don't really relate to the spiritual realm. But perhaps the Lord has actually put this person in my life to speak this thing to me, but immediately, it's, and I'm already uncomfortable. I mean, somebody tells me to go eat it like a chocolate bar. I never question that. I mean, would you? That's a word from the Lord. Let me eat it. But if they tell me to go do something which is going to be hard and costly, I'm like, uh, well, I can see this problem with that. I see that problem with that. It's this delayed obedience that Esther has, and she's not ridiculous. She's, she, this is, we'll talk about this. She is not ridiculous to do this. I think we can relate to it because we do this. And, we, and, we're, and we're not, we're, we're not going to, we, we typically are not walking in the realm of what this ultimate point is, is here. Let's, let's, let's go on to get there. Um, this, when, when we're faced with this, like a huge decision, it's to go through the crucible where we're going to be formed and shaped. Or uh, we want another way out. That, that crucible it was like a ceramic kind of bowl where uh, metals would be poured and formed and shaped. So it can stand all kinds of heat, and then it's forming and shaping. So we talk about going through the crucible as meaning it, through this process, which is going to be painful and hard, we will be formed and shaped. That's, that's the concept here. Um, the thing that awaits us is going to form and shape us as we go through it. That's why it's uncomfortable. It's not like eating the chocolate bar. 
It's going, and, 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 it's, and it's going to take it's going to take pressure. It's going to move and shape us. It's going to be emotionally taxing. It's going it's, it, we're going we're going to we're going to have to think differently. We're going to have to act differently. And it really has a lot to do with submitting ourselves or death to self and a lot about the gospel that we just heard. Esther raises two objections. Our first one is that the Persian kings liked their privacy. And they controlled who would come into their presence. There was a list, a very small list, of those who could actually come and go into their presence. And the queen wasn't even on that list. To force your way into the king's presence would result in death. This is a, it's a, one of these Persian laws. And Persian law was not meant, it was not known for its leniency or its flexibility. And this has already been demonstrated to us earlier in the book. Her second objection is, it had been a month since the king had sent for her. And this relates to topics from a couple of weeks ago in that, in that message that was not recorded because we talked about all those things, I guess. Um, but you, you'll remember last week we talked about there was a second gathering of the virgins and there was speculation that time, enough time had passed. Like when, when we're reading about Esther won the king's favor and therefore she, was, um, she became queen, then you move on and it's, again, it's only a few sentences and then we're into this other thing where he, there's a second gathering of virgins. Well, so we established that time had passed and likely, I, we were speculating, enough time had passed that he'd grown uh, tired of Esther and so rounded up some more. Well, here she says it's been a month since she was called by the king. Well, chances are good. The round, that other round of virgins was keeping him happy and therefore he didn't need the uh, company of Esther. So she already knows that there's, a, she's not in the great favor with him that she once was. So this is, I think this is wisdom. This is not a ridiculous, neither one of these are ridiculous excuses. Um, she had reasons to doubt her position. Like if, if she's going to barge in and, and get in the king's presence to give him some sort of a message because crazy cousin Mordecai tells me I should go do this. Well, I'm already not in the best favor with him. And it could be that he really goes ahead and executes me instead of handing me this golden scepter and giving me a pardon. So her concerns were valid. And so she doesn't act immediately. But she responds to Mordecai with these objections that she's identified. So Mordecai then uh, helps her gather conviction to persevere. So conviction to persevere through adversity is our next uh, heading I want us to see. And verse 12 says, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Mordecai saying, You're worried about your life? You're worried about going into the king's palace and going into the king's presence, and he, that might cost you your life. Well, let me tell you, your life 
your days are numbered anyway. The fact that, remember, you are a Jew, Esther. Now, I, I, I know I had told you to keep that to yourself, but it will be found out, and you too will be killed. It will be revealed somehow that, you're going to, that you are a Jew, and you will not survive any more than the Jews out in the country. Just because you're in the palace doesn't mean you're safe. Even if she could keep her identity a secret, her heritage, her, when it talks about her father's house, her heritage would be cut off as those people, the people of God, her people, would be obliterated. The renewed Mordecai recognized as part of God's story. And he had, abandoned, he had abandoned his Persian pursuits and embraced his own roots. So he speaks with great confidence as he tells Esther in verse 14. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from yet another place. But you and your father's house will perish. You do what you need to do. But if it's not you, God will raise up someone else to rescue his remnant. Now that's some pretty, some pretty huge confidence coming from Mordecai who has been hiding. We talked about how compromised Mordecai had been. Actually, some commentators say um, that's the, the, the way I'm delivering this is not the way to interpret that, that he could not have had that much confidence or that much faith there is nothing in the story yet that has displayed that much faith. And I, I agree. And I think, I think I've done a fine job of helping you understand how compromised he had been. But the, ter the turn, the change came last week. I think this is exactly what's going on here. I think, he, I think he's awakened to his roots and he knows that God will redeem his people even when he looks around and he sees destruction everywhere, somehow God's going to save a remnant of his people because God said so. I think that Mordecai really has traded his Persian identity, he's traded his everything for a renewed sense and appreciation and love for Yahweh. He continues in his faithful optimism as he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. If you're, you know, uh, if you mark in your Bibles, this is certainly one to underline, mark, highlight. This is one, you know, you can be in your Christian bookstores and you'll see uh, little whatever's with this little verse on it for such a time as this. Many times we don't see God's hand or his hidden providence in our lives until we look back. We can see what he's done when we're looking back, but when, they're, we're, when we're in the midst of it and you're telling me this different thing, this hard thing, but not telling me to eat a chocolate bar, I question that and I, I'm wondering, uh, maybe I'm not even wondering, could this be of God? Because I operate in my own strength. What, what about you? What about you? Where has God placed you for such a time as this? When you're faced with uh, 
the challenge of going through the crucible. Do you realize that God has providentially arranged all these details so that that is your option that's out in front of you? And does that make you willing then to press forward and persevere and go through the crucible where you know you'll be formed and shaped? Or do you choose option B, ignoring the person who's speaking to you because I want to do my own thing and I want to operate in my own strength. So whether you're a student and you're seeing another student being picked on or bullied, that concept where if you stepped in, it may cost you your reputation. If, if you identify with that student who is one of those who's likely to be bullied or picked on. When I, Andrew went to scout camp the other couple weeks, whatever, some, that was in summer. He went, he went for the summer, uh, for, so the summer camp for a week. Stephen and I went to the same camp when we were kids. And so I asked, I, I asked Andrew if, if uh, I said, did anybody pick on you? He said, no. I said, well, did you pick on anybody else? He said, well, no. I said, okay, maybe you're just not allowed to do that anymore. But it's, my experience is, when you get that age of little, little guys around, they like to pick on each other. And it's, it's not flattering. To, God doesn't smile on this. It's not a fun thing. Well, it's fun for the, it's fun for the kids because, you know, they get to pick on somebody. When I was a kid, we had a, a girl who would ride our bus, and she, and she would have been a, a smelly girl. You really didn't want to identify with her. But you also didn't want to see her isolated. To do the right thing was costly because it could cost you your reputation if you became friends with the smelly girl. And then because the girl was smelly, uh, she had lots of needs. So if you actually became friendly to her, she thought you were her real, like, we're buddies. And then it was like, and this is well before I even heard of what, I, I didn't know what a boundary was. But you kind of had to learn pretty quick because she was going to be your best buddy and hang on to you. Well, I didn't need that either. I just wanted, I just wanted to be friendly to her. So I, 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 think these, I think this life lesson is important to us. And, it, it, and I think it's very applicable for kids in school. I think it's applicable for the businessman, businesswoman who might be tempted to compromise the ethical behavior, ethical right behavior for gain of some sort. Maybe, and this, and this is not a foreign thing, it goes on all the time, in order to gain a client, in order to keep a client. It goes in the, it get, this goes on in the church. In order to keep a, a good tither, I'll compromise. Yeah, it's just not, God has called you to do the, wrong, the, the right thing, which can be hard and it can be costly. I think this life lesson goes to the disciplining of our children. That would be far easier in the, in the short term. Old man, got grown kids, been all my life, wait till then, wait till then, wait till then. Okay, I'm, I'm past all that. I've got kids, had kids. They're grown, they are having kids. My advice is, it's hard in the moment to exercise the discipline. 
is this like, is this, is it, is that really comparable to Esther and her saving God's people? I say yes, because you have to make a choice to go through the hard thing where God's going to form and shape you as you're exercising discipline over your children. Now, you can ignore that because you want the easy way out. <clears throat> I just want to sit around in my lazy boy and eat my candy bar. But ultimately, it makes your life much more difficult, and it will make your child's life more difficult as they go on. This is nothing more than um, commandment number five, where you're going to honor your parents. And you're honoring your parents because you need to learn to be submissive to authority, not just your parents, but ultimately all authority, so that they will become submissive to God. So there's a bigger plan than whether Johnny doesn't want to pick up his toys today. Do you, do you see yourself in these moments of being delivered to this place, to that time, to the smell of your own bus for such a time as this? Got to find my place. With a renewed vision of God's providence. So that Esther is willing to do this hard thing. It's gonna, it will be costly. I think, this, I think this is what we need. I think we need a renewed vision of God's providence to recognize that God has put you in that place at that time for such a time as this. So it gives you the motivation for the perseverance for the hard thing. Verse 15 says, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my, and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him to do. A renewed vision of God's providence, recognizing her options. She's willing to go to the king. She's willing, this, so the other place to underline, and that that may be more familiar to you, those, these two lines, the one I already told you about, and this one, if I perish, I perish. What is she saying? She's, she's saying the gospel that we just read. What, what does it profit? What does it profit me if I gain the whole kingdom as queen, but I lose my soul? If I am not willing to be obedient in God's calling to me, because I want to hold on to the things that are here, what does that profit me? I must be willing to lose my life to receive life. When you're in these situations where you're weighing the cost of obedience, are you going to choose, if I perish, I perish? Now, I do, I do, think, I do think it's the first step for us would be to get past, you know, this, this, is, this is old Bob from work, and he just says these weird things sometimes. My 
challenge to us is see if Bob might actually be a messenger of God to you. Maybe he's actually saying something to you that the Lord needed you to hear. Maybe he's not. But I think before we're going to immediately take up somebody's idea when, they, when it's a good one, eating the chocolate bar, versus give, you give me a hard option, and I'm willing to dismiss that, maybe I haven't entertained the fact that God is sovereign over all these things anyway. So if I perish, I perish. Esther has turned from being that Kim Kardashian of the Old Testament to placing her life and her efforts into the hands of Yahweh. I will go. I will do. And Lord, whatever you have for me, you have for me. I think there's a display of trust in him, in her actions. She, she turns from, uh, she, she has a risk before her. It's, it's a risk for her life. But she can see, because Mordecai helped her see how, okay, may, maybe it's not such a freaky coincidence that you are in the king's palace, that you are in the position you were in, and you were a Jew and nobody knows it. How interesting that this has worked out. Maybe it actually has something to do with God ordaining all these freaky coincidences that we see him as, but it's actually in God's sovereign plan. She asks for a fast, which likely includes prayer. So the writer, the author of Esther, still doesn't use the word prayer. There is this three-day fast that she's commanded. So she, she's the one who turns and she's giving commands. And she says, this is what we're going to do. We're going we're to fast for three days. So let's say fast and pray. It seems reasonable. That's why you fast, is to pray. And especially in a Jewish heritage, you would fast and pray. We're going to fast and pray, and then I'll go into the king. I will make my, get into his presence, and if I live, I live. But I want you to be praying for me. So she actually, I think, is very humble uh, in, in this position she's in now. If, if, and if you, if you missed the, the Kim Kardashian of the Old Testament uh, sermon piece that... Uh, that was an earlier reference, and I think that more portrayed her, her attitude early on. I think she's been transformed through that and is willing to take the risk, but she's also wanting to enter through prayer. So the, the scene closes with this ray of hope through the reordering of, our, of, of her priorities. I think that's the key for us. Recognizing God's sovereign control all, over all things, his hidden providence, will you recognize that and reorder your priorities? As you've reordered your priorities, then will you be willing to persevere through the crucible, through the suffering, through the risks, in order to receive the joy of and the grace on the other side. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.